Does your home have a staffing strategy in place? StaffStat automates your shift filling process and intuitively predicts shift needs. Plan A works in tandem with StaffStat, offering homes a backup staffing model that supports employees and keeps residents safe and cared for. Learn more at ltcstaffingstrategy.com. I think about what older adults tell me what they want, and it looks a lot more like a cruise ship. It looks like making sure that people have lots of choices and accessibility and then on-site care. And it's about being a valued part of that community as opposed to a burden. This is Coming of Age, meeting the needs of our aging population, a podcast about how we can better support our seniors. I'm your host, Donna Duncan. I'm also the CEO of the Ontario Long-Term Care Association, which represents about 70% of long-term care homes in Ontario, Canada. By 2030, Canada will be home to 9.5 million seniors, making up 23% of the total Canadian population. As baby boomers continue to age, are we ready for impact? On today's episode of Coming of Age, I'm joined by Laura Tamblin-Watts, President and CEO of CanAge, Canada's national advocacy organization for seniors. Laura is a lawyer, an advocate, an educator, and an author. And she's expert in the issues seniors are facing today, including ageism, loneliness, and long-term care and other healthcare challenges. We'll learn Laura's perspective on the impending explosion of the seniors population in Canada and what we can do to better prepare. Laura, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm really looking forward to it as well. Today, uh, we want to touch on a few things, but most especially really focusing on that baby boom bomb, which is not just going to hit Canada, but it's going to hit other parts of the world. As we're having uh, our discussions with public policymakers and some of our colleagues around the world, really getting a sense that some countries are actually well ahead of us. would love to learn your perspective, given all of the hats you wear and the, the national perspective that you bring about the rapid growth of our senior population. Canada is really behind its comparator jurisdictions. We're alone in the OECD as not having a plan for aging. And we're one of the super aging countries. So we're actually an older country than our neighbors to the south. And when we think about who we need to be comparing ourselves to, we often look at the Nordic countries, which have fairly similar systems in terms of social security, but we're nowhere near where they are, or even Northern Europe. We are a little bit closer to how our Australian cousins are in terms of thinking about aging, but really we have a lot of work to do. And it's not that we didn't know that we were going to have a lot of work to do. It's the same decision makers that close their eyes and put their hands over their heads who are themselves the boomers. There is a piece here that really is founded in ageism. And that kind of closing yourself off or refusing to look at an aging population is really caught up in the sense that older people don't contribute And so this is something we're going to turn away from. 
And we can't look at ourselves in the mirror because it's ourselves and our own aging and our own mortality that we're really challenged with. So it's kind of not just an individual problem, but it's a collective turning away from our own aging. What this means, however, is we're really not ready. And we are just now starting to scrabble at the most challenging issues, some of which we've seen really highlighted in long-term care for our frailest frail and often our oldest old, who are towards end of life. But ask anybody with an aging parent, ask any person who's hit 65 and what they're thinking about right now, and they're starting to think that the font is too small and that stairs are a little bit hard and that transit lights move too quickly. And they're starting to realize that our communities are not age inclusive. And they can be, but we just have to do something about it. There has been a sense that making the change is too expensive. And what we know is it's just the opposite that we're throwing good money after bad unless we start to fundamentally shift with our thinking and our building of society. We're thinking about things like encouraging people to go into particular areas. Every med student wants to go into, you know, ER and pediatrics, but really what we need are geriatricians. So there's a shift that has to happen in mentality as well around valuing older people. You know, you've raised a, a great point, uh, touching on who the professionals are going to be, who are going to care for aging population. I'm not seeing a workforce strategy anywhere in Canada right now. We absolutely do not have a workforce strategy. And we don't even have a workforce strategy that looks outside of Canada for immigration. We're just completely closing our eyes to it. We somehow think that professionals aren't aging or professionals don't get sick or professionals don't need help themselves. And so we talk about personal support workers or healthcare aides, we talk about nurses, we talk about doctors, and we talk about other support service workers as if they're ageless. But the reality is that demographic is old and getting older, and we are not replenishing or encouraging people into these areas. And it's interesting because in some areas, for instance, nursing is one of them, you know, there are people who are very interested in becoming nurses, but there's a blockage because there's not enough ways to train them quickly. And part of that is around sort of old-fashioned systems of training and education, not keeping up with modern technology. So if I thought nobody wanted to be a nurse, I would be thinking about one way. But what we happen, we see that people do want to be nurses, um, but we're just not letting them actually find a way in and through. So it's a combination of encouraging people to think about aging within their practices, but it's also recruitment in innovative ways to get people ready and trained for the kind of patients that they're actually going to have, which are going to be older. You know, it's such a great point. And, and what the pandemic has really shone a light on in Canada, especially in Quebec and Ontario, is the state of the capital infrastructure. Well, you and I have had different discussions about this around the moment of disruption. I'm not feeling in what I'm hearing from my discussions with baby boomers that they want what we're offering today. And they're telling me, I don't want the government to prescribe for me how many baths and when I have to bathe, the size of a scoop of food for me, when I have to eat, when I can eat my meals or not eat my meals. We've sort of infantilized our seniors 
I think about what older adults tell me what they want, what the, the, the desire is. And it looks a lot more like a cruise ship. It looks like choice of meals. It looks like fresh, clean sheets. It's companionship. It's activities and connection. It's freedom to eat at the buffet whenever it suits you to do that. It's making sure that people have lots of choices and accessibility and then on-site care. And it's about being a valued part of that community as opposed to a burden or a trouble on somebody. I don't think anybody wants that. What they want is a system that meets the flexible needs of individuals that makes folks excited to come to work, that makes people happy to live there. It's, it's not really that hard to do. It really means taking a look at all of the things we don't like and doing the opposite and then have a look at something like a cruise ship or a vacation all-inclusive resort and say, what are the things you really like Then you know, when you go away and on vacation or what are the lovely things that you see in a hotel? I'm not suggesting that long-term care homes are hotels, but what I'm saying is there's things that make people feel good and empowered and the more choice that you strip away from them, the worse it is. Is this the moment when we start to, for, for lack of a better word, deconstruct what it is, knowing especially that in Ontario, our population over 80 is going to double in the next 13 years, and we have 40,000 people on a wait list in August of 2021. And who are desperate to get the care that they need, but whether or not they need to be in that type of, and I'll use the term institutional because our thinking around the legislation kind of makes it one. Homes is what they want. I would I would suggest to you, most people on that list want the care. They may not want that model of care. We were talking a little bit about some other jurisdictions and examples for, you know, who does it really well. And I was in a wonderful long-term care home in the Netherlands. And it was really based on, you know, what we actually talk about as aging in place, not not a, a catchphrase that we use, but really was. And so people would really come into a congregate type of village. It had playgrounds for grandchildren. There was independent seniors housing so that your loved ones could have as much freedom. That's just really tenancy apartments, but with community and check-ins and so on. And then they may need to move very little into more complex care. It looks almost exactly like the place they were before. In fact, if you weren't moving, you might think that you were exactly in the same place as similar furnishings and you could bring your own furnishings in and so on and so forth. But behind the wall was really a critical care health center. And so you weren't having beeps, you weren't having machines going off, you weren't being woken up at three o'clock in the morning. It was really just a beautiful villa that you lived in and had some companionship in. And then there was this sort of back door, which was quite clinical on the other side because people were providing very complex high needs healthcare, but that wasn't what people lived within. It was what was wrapped around it behind this sort of decorative walls. And and I thought, this is a really exciting opportunity. The lights aren't too bright. The noises aren't too loud. People are, are given their dignity and they can have everything in this home environment. And I thought, yeah, this is what people want. This is the time to take apart our old ideas of long-term care. Our population is older than that of the United States, and our plan for the impending age boom is nowhere near ready, nor is it clear. According to Laura, there's more that we can be doing to prepare for this massive shift in demographics. 
Here are some of her thoughts and suggestions. One thing, Laura, that you do, and I want the listeners to know this, you are a great unifier and you're so positive and have a unique skill at bringing together people around a common purpose. In your discussions, where can we find agreement so that at this pivotal time when we really do not have time for fighting politically or among organizations, how do we build that movement to move this and get this on track? I think this is a unique moment of empathy. Often when we're thinking about aging, we are really talking about us and them. And you know, there's been some fun studies that show that you think an old person is 20 years older than you are. Doesn't matter how old you are. <laughs> it's 20 years older than that. So if you're five, you think 25 is old. If you're 50, you think 75 is old. <laughs> and so there is this sort of disconnect. But what we have all experienced during about a year and a half of COVID-19 is that sense of isolation and loneliness and longing and disconnect. I think there is this moment in time where we can say, all right, we all know that that was terrible. How much worse would it be? We're not going to let that happen again, actually. And I mean, it was done with good thought, right? Stop visitors and stop so on and so on. But the solutions have to be, how is it that we keep physical, mental, and social health as we age? I combine that sort of social disconnect on empathy with asking people, have they ever had an injury? Most people have broken something or sprained something or had a hip replacement or whatever it was. And I asked them to go back to that place where they realized they couldn't move and hold their cup of coffee or they were in their bed and had to go to the bathroom and didn't know how they were going to move themselves. Those moments that we all experience in our life because of some type of physical injury. Then I said, put those two things on top of each other. So you have the most profound social isolation and longing, and you have that feeling of vulnerability and disability. And nobody wants to be in that spot. We know our, our baby boomers in particular are individuals who have committed themselves to fitness, to, you know, having fun, enjoying life, uh, keeping well. We're hearing they they don't want to go into what is long-term care as we know it today. And I love your framing around empathy. I would love us to be able to harness that. So for our listeners at at this moment in in Canada, and uh, we're about to go into a a full year of elections with uh, the Ontario provincial election and and then municipal elections in Ontario following on that. And it's such an interesting time because how do we move things and get people to embrace this moment of empathy and opportunity, knowing that this is a year out of a decade wherein we need to build in and replace a workforce. We need to make sure that all of these other supports are in place, which is so exciting because it really is that opportunity for a moment. There is a moment and the boomers are good about moments. They, they do seize on them on the whole, but there has been a real disconnect with this idea that they're aging. And one of the most powerful moments that I felt was an existential moment. It wasn't, a, it wasn't anything that really happened. It was when the Ontario government said, and then it was repeated by the federal government, that people over 70 
must stay at home and are old and vulnerable. Well, you can only imagine the phone calls that CanAge got. You're telling me that I am old? Like, are you kidding? I play tennis four times a week. I volunteer at my communities. I, I'm still working. I go to the office. I'm like, and this is the first time those people started to feel with kind of open eyes that they were being looped into a category that their whole generation has rejected, right? Never trust anyone over 30. And so that was a really interesting, powerful moment for them. And what we have seen is that people now are really not wanting to give up their independence. And they're starting to think about what they can do creatively to age differently. If you think about societally, people want to stay in their own homes. They want to be able to continue being part of that community and for that matter, that tax base. And and all you have to do is give them a little bit of help in order to change their stairs into a ramp or to make sure that, you know, somebody with dementia gets automatic shut off stoves, right? So some of these are really easy things to do and people are, are interested in it, but haven't yet sort of got to the point where until they see it with their own eyes as being a life or death issue or a issue that makes you go into long-term care, do they do it? The COVID-19 pandemic shone light on some of the fundamental changes that must take place in order to create a more supportive system of care for our seniors in the future. We need to break down the barriers between generations and between each other so that we can better understand their needs. At the end of the day, the more choices you strip away from seniors, the worse individuals feel. We need a system of supports and care that prioritizes seniors' mental health and happiness and values seniors as individual beings rather than as a faceless demographic group that requires a lot of resources. Laura shared her thoughts on how we can think of more creative solutions to reduce the stigma about aging and seniors and improve the long-term care system overall to support the growing seniors demographic as we go forward. You talked about dementia, and I know you've written a book. (laughs) And really, you've done a lot of work as a lawyer, as an advocate, in thinking about supporting caregivers to understand their journeys. What are some of those tipping points that are going to prompt caregivers to go the long-term care home route, even when there may be home care supports? But also, what advice do you have for families in navigating that and and actually thinking ahead and preparing for it as a possibility? I think of it as a probability, actually, statistically. If you live long enough, you're going to have some type of cognitive impairment. It does not mean that everybody will, but if you're going to just sort of close your eyes and pretend like it's not going to happen, you may find yourself in a bit of a, a challenge. The stigma around dementia, in my view, is one of the worst stigmas of all. It really is. And the terror about it. We've done all kinds of work at CanAge and we need to deconstruct a little bit because people can live, you know, positive lives and, and caregivers can can manage often much better if they had some of the resources they want. Fundamentally, you're not getting into long-term care really in most places in Canada just because of triaging, unless you've got some pretty notable dementia plus incontinence. Plus, you probably have at least one other complex care need. So the reality is most people are being taken care of at home. I mean, that's just the reality. So we 
could do better with a few more supports. So if we had people coming in for continent support, which, you know, isn't really mostly happening, but continent support, if we are having some new technologies implemented that are made available, like automatic shutoff stoves or a big one and, and some other technologies where things have shutoffs, if we have some you know, better footwear, because with dementia, slip and falls are real and where you have sort of visual confusion. So there's some really easy things that we can do. People need information though, because every caregiver goes on this journey, kind of like every mother goes on a pregnancy journey for the first time. So there's a huge curve of learning the first time and making that available information that they can understand and relate at the beginning and not feel guilty about is really important. And the last piece is around, I just wanted to pick up on the power of attorney piece with dementia. For caregivers who also become attorneys or in BC, uh, Yukon and and, uh, Nova Scotia, that might be a representative who might be making decisions for somebody who has lost mental capacity to make their own decisions, getting taught what you're supposed to do would be really helpful. And yet, in all of the years that we've had substitute decision-making legislation, like power of attorney documents, there's never been anywhere that you could go get trained. And I think that's unfair. You do it wrong, there could be criminal and civil responsibilities. You're held to a fiduciary standard, which means the highest possible standard. We don't tell people how to do it. And mostly, no one gets paid for it. I mean, they might get a little bit of, uh, of money you know, being a financial attorney, but in nowhere near actually the amount of work it does. So we need to equip people with tools in language that they can understand. We need to give them experiences to feel that empathy, like that dementia experience. And we need to listen to caregivers by saying, what is it that you need? It's not a one size fits all. Sometimes people with dementia's caregivers say, look, if you could just walk the dog and like vacuum the house, I can do all the rest. So we need to provide people with the flexibility to meet the needs that they want, as opposed to saying home care will come in for one hour and 40 minutes and provide one meal and, you know, do one thing. And you think, yeah, but those aren't the things that I need in order to do it. So I think there needs to be more choice on the menu and let people who are caregivers decide, you know, what is it that they need in order to cope? You know, my mother used to always say that uh, in order to be a caregiver, you need to care care for yourself. Dr. Rhonda Collins um, joined our podcast on an earlier episode, and she said, "You, when you meet a person w- with dementia, you have met an individual with dementia, and every person is unique, and every situation is unique." And I'm going to go back to my comment about the people who've been raised with Starbucks and the 172 variations on how they get their coffees. As you age, why can you not have choice? And it may well be far more affordable from a tax perspective. To your point. Laura, around if we equip ourselves and allow for choice and not this cookie cutter, it can make such a difference and bring such dignity and respect and destigmatize it. Because I, I, I agree, the stigma is real. No, it, it, and it's multiple layers of stigma, right? It's, it's the stigma of dependency. It's the stigma of age. It's kind of the stigma of embarrassment with continence sometimes. It's the stigma of feeling like you're losing it. So all of these things layered onto it. And I think that we really need to understand that and not infantilize people at end of life just because that they have, you know, care needs. There's disabilities that are acquired sometimes through age. But 
you know, it, it doesn't mean that you get to talk to me like that. It doesn't mean that you get to be infantilizing in that regard. I think one of the things that we're going to see, I'm hopeful, I'm hopeful, is that private sector, which in some cases has been vilified in the care provision world, may create more interesting options for people. You know, I think about the fact that Jimmy Buffett has now opened Margaritaville retirement communities where, you know, boomers who want to live the Margaritaville lifestyle can go and find their lost shaker of salt. And it just makes me laugh. And I think that they're having a great time. And, you know, there is this idea of sort of some commercialism that I think could bring some really interesting choices to people. I'm waiting for the Airbnb of care homes where people want to go somewhere else, like they want to go to Tuscany and they want to come to see, I don't know, Toronto. And they do Airbnb swaps or home swaps where your care provision remains the same, but you go to each other's places. Like I think there's a lot of creativity that's going to happen. And, and part of that is really to do with the fact that the technology marketplace and the business marketplace hasn't yet caught up to the reality of the demographics. The chasing of the 18 to 35 demographic is just poorly thought out. It's a bit baffling for anyone who looks at demographics. But if you're thinking about sort of bulk of, of wealth, there is a lot in the, say, let's call it 55 to 85 category. And there are fewer demands of time because there's a greater retired population and there's a more interested in experiencing life experiences. So why would you then take all of that stuff away and put them in a 100 square foot room that may be shared with bathing facilities with other people just because they have high care needs? No. So I'm, I'm interested to see when business will get on board with improving the quality of life as well as the quantity of life. Moira Welsh was our first guest on our podcast, and she's written a book. And I know that uh, you uh, had a, a great uh, comment on it in, in reviewing her book. And, and she talks about some of the models where the private sector is involved in, in other countries and what some of those innovations have been where there's been a real commitment to quality and experience and outcomes and quality of life and really thinking differently about that, uh, including where intergenerational programming can fit in. Everybody loves intergenerational programming as an idea and where it falls down tends to be on insurance and no one wants to talk about it because they're so worried about vulnerable sector checks and and insurance liability. And so if we, again, if we can get past that, we know very well that we have measurable improvements in both children and older people in brain cognition, learning, and mobility as well. There's been a fantastic studies where you have, uh, you know, kids who are sort of kindergarten age and, and so on and older people. And at the beginning, they measured how active and physical they could be, how flexible their joints are, how much they could move or their stability. And after working with kids for a period of time, they remeasured them and almost across the 
the board, there were significant gains. So it really is that idea that we're social creatures and we're meant to live intergenerationally. We're meant to live with social connections. And this sort of siloing of our population is really a detriment to learning. That idea of segmenting populations is a very 1950s forward idea. We didn't do that before in the same way. And I think we're now reaping that same problem on the back end. So this is that kind of arc, that natural arc, that time to deconstruct those age ideas that we put into in post-World War II and sort of think about what are interests, what are goals, what does purpose mean, and then have people come around those issues together. Wow, I think that's a great comment to end on. And it's so aspirational. I think you've landed there and uh, really want to thank you. You know, it's such an opportunity to find our voice as we and break down those, those silos. Laura Tamblin Watts, thank you so much for this enlightening, enriching discussion. Right back at you. Thank you for the work that you're doing and and for your listeners. I'm sure that they know that you and your colleagues have been working around the clock. There's a lot of heroes that we talk about, but we don't always talk about the people who are holding together those services and those groups of people. And you and your organization have been at the center of taking care of our most vulnerable in our most difficult times. So my great gratitude to you as well. In my conversation with Laura, we discussed several key points about supporting Canada's aging population and how we can better support seniors in the future. Here were some of my key takeaways. First, there is a pervasive idea in the seniors' care system that making changes is too expensive, when in fact, the opposite is true. The costs of not changing are far greater. Every aspect of the seniors' care sector, from government to long-term care and end-of-life care, needs a fundamental shift in thinking and perspective so that we can come up with more creative, supportive solutions and solutions that work. Two, we are facing a health human resources crisis in Canada, and we are in need of a far more effective, bold, urgent health human resources workforce strategy so that we can replenish our shrinking workforce more quickly. The reality is that our workforce of professionals and physicians is aging too. So we need to do more to replace them to ultimately avoid an even larger gap in resources. And three, we need to do more to reduce the stigma about dementia and aging in general. Laura mentioned there's a special kind of terror associated with dementia, but it doesn't have to be this way. Individuals can live full, healthy lives with a diagnosis of dementia, and we need to provide more flexibility of choice for individuals living with the condition and for their families. Thank you for listening to Coming of Age, Meeting the Needs of Our Aging Population. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe rate our show five stars, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. 
you can follow Laura Tamblin Watts on Twitter at LTamblin Watts, connect with her on LinkedIn, or visit www.canage.ca to learn more about CanAge. Our next episode will be airing on October 12th. Until next time, I'm your host, Donna Duncan. Stay well.